In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, you don't need to turn there right now. I'm not even going to read the passage. Um, It just says, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul says that the things that happened in the Old Testament were written down for our benefit as examples to us in order that we might know how to live. And that's exactly how I am going about these sections of Scripture about Samuel and Saul and David and Solomon. And because we're looking at the question of how is it that these men lived that is instructive for us, there's at least one question that is raised specifically in light of David. And that's the question of how does a man whose heart seeks after the heart of God live? And that's a great question. Because whether you are a man or a woman who is trying to be what God wants you to be, to look at the life of somebody, a man who lives after God's own heart, has got to be instructive. It's got to tell me something about how I'm supposed to live. Because I don't know very many people that I can say about them, oh, this guy's heart is a heart after God's own heart. When I do find someone like that, and I do have some people in my life that I've thought, man, he, he or she is just so after God. When I do find someone like that, I think, man, I need to pay attention to them. That is a person whose life needs to be instructive for me. So no matter whether I see David as a warrior, or I see David even as an immoral man, which he was at times, There is a life here worthy of emulation. And we need to ask the question, how did David live? And I don't mean, obviously, every single moment. He was not perfect. We can find flaws pretty easily, even some big flaws. But how does this man after God's own heart carry himself in general? And I think that's a question worthy of our consideration because as men and women of God living in our age, we need some guidance on how to live. And especially, we need some guidance on how to live if we feel at all called to lead in the body of Christ. And so it wasn't long ago that the church was asked to put forward some names of those who might potentially serve as elders in our congregation. And so we're going through that process. We haven't said much about it. It's, we're going to take some time with this. We're just now, uh, we've just now selected and affirmed the team that is going to go about the task of appointing some new elders for us. They're going to have their first meeting on August 9th. And so we're in the process. I think it'll take some time. But if you're a person whose name is on that list, I would like to think that you're thinking seriously about what does it mean for me to be a person after God's own heart? How am I going to live? What does it mean for me to be a person who's qualified to lead in the body of Christ? And especially in what I would say are such troubled times. The fact is is that our church, because because we're just a Christian church, as time goes on, we are going to fo- fro- face we are going to face more and more troubling 
issues, challenges. And if you think to yourself, I thought we'd reached our limit, not even close. Who knows what kind of challenges are going to come to the church in the future? And there have to be those who are going to deal spiritually, biblically, with hearts after God in light of the issues that we have to face. Everything around us, it seems to me, at different points is in chaos. And so these are times of great challenge and even of great change. I was talking with Gary a little bit about this this week in my office, and then I had a conversation similar with Jody Rubel later on in the week when we were here for VBS. Just about the things that are going on in our world, the things that we have to face, the challenges that are present before us. One thing that I'm convinced of is that our political leaders are shooting in the dark when it comes to creating the best world possible in which we can live. And they're shooting in the dark not because they can't envision good things. Like I think Justin Trudeau can envision some good things for the Canadian people. I think even Donald Trump has the ability to envision some good things for the American people. But because they are human, at the very least, they don't know how to implement any good visions that they might have. And so it's clear to me that neither Justin Trudeau, nor Barack Obama, nor Vladimir Putin, nor David Cameron, nor David Cameron's successor when he comes or she comes, nor the Donald, nor Hillary, are equipped to lead the world out of a state of chaos. We're going into the darkness at this point. We're not on the way out of it. And I think that if we put our trust In those people, no matter who they are, we're in trouble. In fact, you know who, right now, if I was going to pick a world leader and say, this is the person I think I would trust more than anybody else. This might surprise you, but for me, personally, it would be Pope Francis. And not that one. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know the man that well. In fact, I guess I could say I don't know him at all. I don't know much about him, but some of the things I see, I like. And at least I know this, or at least I think this is true of him. I think that he at some level is trying to do what he thinks God wants him to do. And I can't say that about so many other political leaders in our world. And here we are facing all the things that we're facing. And so one virtue he has is at least I think he's trying to think about what God's will might be. And that is what David did. In fact, it would be nice to think that if David were alive today, that he'd run for office. I could get into voting for King David. In fact, I might even be willing to submit to the kingship of King David, he wouldn't be perfect, but at least the things he envisioned for our world would be the things that come from the will of God. At least his heart would be craving after God's own heart. And so I would kind of like it if David was here and he ran for office. As it turns out, probably people wouldn't vote for him. Maybe we all would. But there's so many people who in our world today are not interested in a man after God's own heart. They're interested usually 
about what they're going to get for themselves. And so I don't know that David would be elected today. But boy, it'd be, it'd be nice to think that he could. So what is it that we can see today from the life of David that can serve as an example to us? And before we read this passage of Scripture that I'm going to read, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's on page 209 if you're in the Pew Bibles. One of the things that I, I just want to pose today, just to get you thinking a little bit, is the word retaliation. Retaliation. You know, this is a big word in our world. Have you listened to some of the things that another notable world leader has been saying, one whose example I don't think we should emulate, and this is this man-child who rules North Korea? Like the things that he says and that his administration say are frightening. And, and I, they, they scare me because he, he sounds, on the one hand, I think, so immature, and then on the other hand, I think, a little bit off his rocker. And so he's worrisome. And one of the things that he talks a lot about is this notion of retaliation. You know, the United States, as far as he's concerned, is always doing something. And his retaliation is declaring war. Now, whether or not he'll follow through with any of that, I don't know. But it's just a little bit frightening. Well, retaliation is a key kind of word, I think, for this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. I have to admit, when I read the line, crags of the wild goats, the hunter in me started thinking of that image. I don't know if that's really what the author had in mind in terms of bringing that out in us, but Crags of the Wild Goats is kind of an interesting line. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. That fits this week, doesn't it? And Saul went in to relieve himself, to be honest about it. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And I've, I've tried in my mind a million times to, to bring out the, the image. What does it, this look like? Like, does Saul take his robe off and he lays it down? And David creeps up while Saul's preoccupied? And he cuts off a corner of the robe while it's lying there? Or is Saul wearing the robe at the time? I've always thought that Saul was wearing the robe. But maybe he just has it sitting near him and has taken it off while he does his thing. Interesting, anyway. Verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. And I, I've always imagined that David walks out of the cave and he's maybe up above now and Saul has gone down the, the mountain and he's way down there and he can't get to David very easily, obviously. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Clearly a repentant kind of act. 
He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Man, I just, it's an amazing speech, really. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And I, this father-son language here just amazes me that David calls him my father and Saul says my son. I mean... One is after the other to kill him. The other is running from the one who is pursuing him. And he wept aloud. You're more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You've just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him away unharmed? And, of course, the answer is, no way. May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And clearly Saul knows where all of this is heading. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Really an amazing story. Saul is in pursuit of David's life. He's trying to kill him. And what's even more is that it seems to me like Saul is absolutely unpredictable. One moment he's got thousands of men chasing after David. The next moment he's calling him his son, commending him and saying, you are to be the next king of Israel and you're so much better than I am. And we'll see this in a moment here, but you get to 1 Samuel chapter 26, and after the end of this event, you'd think it would go one way, and you know what Saul ends up doing in chapter 26? He's after him again with the same thousands of men, trying to kill David again. So he's absolutely unpredictable, and he can't be trusted. David knows that the odds are that in sparing Saul's life, he has set Saul up to continue pursuing him. And still, he doesn't kill him. Amazing to me. Well, four things I want you to notice today from David. The first is this. Doing what he believes is God's will is clearly more important to him than giving in to the pressures around him. And I think this is huge for us. I don't know of anything that is more of a challenge 
to the church in our day than giving in to the pressures of those around us. Especially when some of the pressures around us act like sound voices. If we hear a sound voice, oftentimes that's a voice we're willing to listen to. Well, look at verse 4. It says here, The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David has not only every opportunity, but he's got apparently godly men trying to follow the Lord who even speak what they think is the Lord's will in this circumstance, telling David what to do. And he still resists the pressure. And I just wonder if we're even capable of that, the way that we should be today. Especially when we hear what we think, again, is a fairly sound voice at times. There can be some message that comes from the outside to us, and it looks like this is a message we could follow. And at that point, peer pressure is going to be monumental, compelling. And it's at that moment that we need to be people who think not just for ourselves, certainly for ourselves, but absolutely in line what we think is God's will for us. You know, I have people all the time, because I work for the church, because I'm in the position I'm in, I have all the time people give me their opinions about the way things should be. It's very common. Sometimes I get emails, I get phone calls, we'll have coffee, whatever it is, people will let me know, this is how we need to do business in our church, in some way, whatever that might be. And some of you, like, right now you're thinking, well, yeah, and and here's the one, here's the one we need to fix. So listen to me. And I get that. Like we we live as a part of a church in which we all have opinions and we should be able to voice those opinions. But at some point, a decision has to be made. Somebody has to make it. And sometimes it falls to me. And I want you to know that I'm trying the best I can to please all of you at once. Sometimes it's not easy. But we when we're faced with pressure, sometimes even from good people. It's just the responsibility of people in leadership that at times they have to make difficult decisions. And I'm so grateful that David had the guts to say to his whole entourage, who seems to be saying, by the way, absolutely the rational thing, no. No. We're not doing that. And he even seems to have absolute justification for what it is that he chooses. And we know that because of the next verse and the way that David responds. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And so the next point is, out of respect, he regrets even just making Saul out to look foolish. And that's really what he did. He doesn't kill the guy which he could have done. And so what, is he, what has he done? Well, by cutting off the corner of his robe, and, and you can imagine he comes back with the corner of the robe, you know what the guys in the back of the cave are expecting, don't you? They think he's going to come back with his head. 
And he comes back to the back of the cave and instead of coming back with his head, he comes with a little piece of cloth. And they're looking and thinking, what in the world have you done? And instead of him just thinking, well, this was the right move, he even regrets that. Because in that moment of little bit of retaliation, he has attempted to make God's man look foolish. And even that he doesn't like. Now, there's something here I think we need to hear, especially about the ways in which we sometimes treat those who are appointed by God to positions of leadership. I absolutely know that there are times, no matter how good our men are that lead this church, that there are times that you disagree with them. And probably at times for good measure. Our elders are not perfect. Kelly's not perfect. We all know Dustin's not perfect. Okay? There are times when you are thinking, boy, this is not the right move. But one of the things I appreciate about the teaching of this passage is that even when you think it's not the right move, there is a level of respect that still needs to be shown to those who are in positions of leadership within the church. And please don't think that I'm calling for that toward me at all. That's not the point. I really don't care how you treat me. I am concerned about how sometimes we treat those who have been appointed, my Bible says, by the Holy Spirit as overseers within the church. You know, I recognize that these people are capable of making mistakes. I meet with them every two weeks for about three hours. I've heard some mistakes. I've been with them a lot more than that. I've experienced some mistakes, at least mistakes in my opinion. But I would hope that despite myself, that my attitude would nonetheless be one always of respect toward those who have been anointed and appointed by God to have a position of leadership within our church. This is one of the things that I appreciate so much about David. The man is after his life. Saul is trying to kill him. He has thousands of men out in the desert looking for David to kill him. And David is remorseful because he cut off a corner of the guy's robe. And I guess part of my point is, it may be that something in the past has happened. You've had some kind of grudge or bitterness or whatever against some church leader. And I get that. It happens. But let it go. Let it go. God calls us to something different, a different kind of attitude than we sometimes display. A third thing that I think comes out of this. David actually attempts to redeem his enemy. This is amazing to me. Saul is trying to kill him. And that whole paragraph there where David yells at him from the mouth of the cave and Saul is down below, not only does it show respect, 
But he's actually trying to get Saul to see some things that Saul really needs to see. It's as if David says, you know, Saul, my father, you're not perfect. And there are some things here that I hope you can learn. And in the midst of this, in learning these things, you and I can actually have relationship and progress on from here. But you've got some things to learn, brother. And you get the sense in calling him father, in the way that he treats him, that there is actually an affinity there. There's a love that David has not let go of for Saul. And tries to actually redeem the one who is his enemy. This is so contrary to what we typically experience in the world. In the world, when somebody is down and you've got them, you keep them down. I was thinking of this in relationship to, um, to mixed martial arts, of all things. Pretty brutal stuff. No doubt you've been flipping the channels and at some point you've seen people in the cage and the way that they beat up on each other. You know, I I was a boxer for five years. I've been hit. I've hit other people. I kind of get all of that. I, I don't mind watching a boxing match. But there is a part of me that does not like mixed martial arts. And I'll explain why. It's because the one thing that I can't take is some guy kicking somebody else in the head or hitting somebody else in the head and the guy goes down and what do they do in mixed martial arts when the guy goes down? They pounce on them. They are like animals. You get that guy down and if you've knocked him down, it doesn't matter that he's lying there with his head totally exposed and his hands out and he's maybe knocked out on, you know, lying there. If the referee hasn't stopped you, you hit him. And you hit him over and over again until somebody pulls you away. That is the way the world today is. And we simply don't see that in the life of David. What we have in David is a gentleman. We have a gentleman. We find somebody here with some decorum. And the reason why is because he's not of the world. He doesn't do the things that the world does. He has an attitude in which he seeks after God. And so he is a different kind of man. You know, David totally wins here. He has Saul on the mat. He has the opportunity to put him away. And instead he is the gentleman warrior. And he believes it's because God's will. Fourth thing. David still takes into account who Saul is as a human being and he's wise enough still to keep distance. Notice the, is it the very last line here in the story? In verse 21. No, that's not it. Verse 22. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
Why? That's an interesting end to this story. Are we not called by Christ when people repent to forgive them? And shouldn't there then be forgiveness and love? And isn't that supposed to drive our actions? And certainly they should be driving the actions of somebody who is seeking after God's own heart. Like, why is it that Saul and David don't embrace at the end of the story? Why doesn't David run down the mountain and say, My father, and Saul say, My son, and the two of them hug, and they love each other forever? Why does that not happen? Isn't it because this story is just a little bit too real? The fact is, that doesn't happen because Saul ultimately is not to be trusted even if forgiven, even if respected. Even if Saul is still is respected, he still is a human being. And as I said, by the time you get to Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 26, after this incident, you'd think that it would all be over, they would have hugged and it would have been wonderful, but in 1 Samuel 26, Saul is absolutely after him again with an army of guys trying to get David and kill him again. After David has treated him so well. And the reason for that is because Saul ultimately is human. And ultimately Saul is not so interested in just doing God's will. And this is one of the problems, I think, that the perspective many people have about the world today. Why it is a mistake, our attitudes And certainly when it comes to secular politics. I am not about to think that Justin Trudeau or Hillary Clinton, to say nothing of the Donald, are in a position to deserve my absolute trust. I'm not particularly hopeful about any of them. And the reason why is because they aren't David. There is nobody accusing the Donald of seeking after God's own heart. And that's the only one, the one who seeks after God's own heart, that at this point, I'm willing to put myself in their hands and to trust them. The fact is, Justin trusts Justin. The fact is, Hillary trusts in Hillary. And you know that the Donald trusts absolutely and only in the Donald. And I just don't see in any of them a heart where they're seeking after God. And so when we put ourselves in their hands, we are making a mistake. And by the way here, I'm not commending some kind of alliance between Christian evangelicalism and governments the way it sometimes happens in the United States. As if we are a Christian nation or something. I find all of that a bit unbiblical. I find it all a bit distasteful. What I am saying is that men and women of God need to follow leaders whose hearts are seeking after God's. Short of that, we need to be forgiving and gracious and loving, but we need to be a bit wary 
about the secular forces that are out there. They are not necessarily in line with God's will. And we would be foolish to wrap our hopes and our dreams in the plans the world has. For only those who seek the heart of God first are worthy to be trusted. And even they aren't perfect. Back in the late 1980s, I was preaching in Victoria and I made a point in a sermon by discussing the Nazi tragedy and what the events of World War II. And afterward, after I got done preaching the sermon and I'd used the Nazis as an example, this lady, Gertrude was her name, came up to me with tears in her eyes and I knew that she had a German background. And she said, Kelly, I am so tired of people like you using the Nazis as an example. She said, we didn't know. She said, I was a young girl at the time. The whole country was caught up in it. And we just didn't know. And it it took me aback, you can imagine. I felt terrible. I felt bad that I had to take her through all of that again. She wanted people to stop talking about it. And... You know, I was ready to agree. But I've thought a bit about it since then. And here's what I'd have to say. It's true, I think, that she didn't know. I have actually another fellow who recently passed away who went through the same kind of thing she did. And he was actually in the the, uh, Hitler Youth as a boy. He was a member of the church in California where Robin and I were. And and uh, stayed at our house. I knew him well. But as a boy, he'd been in the Hitler Youth. And he said the same thing. We didn't know. Nobody knew. They didn't know what was going on in terms of what the Germans were doing to the Jews. But here's the thing that they should have known. And this is why we don't have an excuse, church, if we're not careful. They should have known that you don't put your lives and your trust in the hands of any human being. Because it doesn't matter whether it's Hitler or someone less. Those people, unless they are seeking after the heart of God, they're way too much like me. They're way too much like you. And we can't be trusted, not unless our hearts seek after God. So be careful about who you trust. Our futures are in God's hands. And they need to be placed only in the futures of those whose hearts are after God. And not that many. And so we ultimately need to be trusting Him. And God, I think, calls us to be a little bit wise in the midst of living this life in terms of the ways in which we trust. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for the example of David. I wish he were alive today. I wish he could rule us today. In the meantime, Father, help us to trust you. There are limits 
as to how devoted we should be to our leaders, our governments, civil authorities, because so often they simply don't seek after you. And so help us to have wisdom. At the same time, Father, for those who are seeking to be what you want them to be, help us to be gracious. Help us to be loving. Help us to be respectful. And Father, I pray that always you would put people in leadership positions in our church who seek after your heart. We long to be a people who seek after your heart and we need those who seek after you with all their heart to lead us. So as we go through this process of appointing new elders, Father, I pray that you would help them to stand alongside our current elders as a group of people who really do seek after you. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen.